2: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. I'm so excited today because I'm joined by a fantastic investor who's also a friend and is going to share with us some really interesting ideas about the way that he invests um, and is a value investor. His name is Jeremy Deal, and he runs and founded JDP Capital in October 2011. Uh, his journey started with 10 years of business experience before that at Honeywell and an electronic security component startup that went, ended up going to private equity, and then he launched his own fund. Jeremy from Amsterdam, welcome hey. to Invested.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me, Danielle. I'm so I've excited to, to have this. you. Yeah, I've wanted to be on your show for a long time, so I'm glad we were able to make it happen.
2: Me too. Big fan. Me too. Um, so, first of all, tell us. I gave that very short intro, but I always like to hear about how people came into value investing because there's so few value investors out there. What, yeah, sure. And where did you where did you come from? What? How did things yeah. start for you? Well, I think
1: like any young person, I was always really interested in finding the thing that was the the fit for me, the career that was the the fit for me, and I was interested in so many things. Um, going back to high school and even before that, and I thought about a lot of different career paths. But I read, I was when I, in my search to figure it out, um, there were kind of two. Well, there were, let me take it back. There were two things I was very passionate about. I was really interested in international relations, and I was hmm. interested in finance and, and 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 business.
2: So you were um, interested
1: in finance always back always when you were a kid. In okay, investing, and it, it was something that was interesting to me. Um, just high level. It was if I had to choose like, okay, there's two things I in, like kind of foreign affairs and investing, which are two really different things that have mm-hmm. nothing really to do with each other. Mm-hmm. And so at some point I, I decided, yeah, I always knew that one of them would end up becoming a hobby and uh, the international relations. And, and that became more of a, just something to read about on the weekends and travel and stuff. But uh, finance became, became the career. So um, I, how did that
2: happen? How well did that, finance I, It happened
1: because I I read a book about George Soros and George Soros said there was a book that he that he was asked how did he figure out that he wanted to become an investor and he also had gone through this process of trying to figure it out and he laid out uh, all and I may be paraphrasing this wrong but he laid out all his skills on a piece of paper. And he was looking for a business to go into that he could be that he could take advantage of all these different skill sets. I think he, you know, said, "I'm, a, I'm, am analytical. I'm this. I'm that. I feel. I want a way to express my my views." Um, and that's how he chose. And I thought, well, that that sounds pretty interesting because I also am interested in a lot of things and have different skill sets and didn't want to be pigeonholed um, to just running, you know, financial models or just selling or Um, you know, just writing or, or I wanted to be able to be creative and think, um, but also make, make important decisions and, 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 and take risk and be paid for that. Um, so it it just, it felt like a a career that I could use a, a variety of, of, um, of skills.
2: Isn't it interesting? You're not the first investor that said something like that. Like I was interested in just learning about so many different things and being an investor lets you do that. Which yes. is something that frankly they don't tell people. They don't tell us that. Like that's not yep. some, that's not the general view of being an investor out there, but it it really is true about people who learn companies and industries and really study them, very very different from trading.
1: That's right. And um you know, out of when I was, when I graduated from school, I, I lived in San Diego and I, it was right during the dot com bust. Um, and it was just after actually the dot com bust. And um, there was just, there was, there was very little opportunity in investing that I could find within Southern California. And I wanted to stay close to home for, for some other reasons. And um, I actually wrote an email to uh, Tom Bancroft, who, was running Geico's portfolio from hmm. San Diego at the time from a I guess an office in Rancho Santa Fe, and um, he actually he worked for he worked for Lou Simpson. Who I take that back. He worked for Lou Simpson, um, and um, he just suggested that I leave altogether because there wasn't I don't know, and maybe I'm paraphrasing that wrong, and maybe we should cut that out of the interview because this is not
2: <laughs> wait 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 um, so you. Sent him a like a a letter. Or an I sent him a letter.
1: Yeah, I sent him a letter, and he responded to I, you. Yeah, I actually sent it to Lou Simpson and Tom. Tell everybody
2: Betra. who Lou Simpson is.
1: Lou Simpson is the guy that ran the investment portfolio for Geico, um, but he lived at the second half of his life before he ultimately ended up. I think in Florida, he lived in Rancho Santa Fe, which is a very wealthy neighborhood in San Diego. And I wrote a letter to the office address that. I had somebody, I don't know how I figured it out, but there was a kind of a non-script address, uh, business, business park. Wow. Uh, And Tom Bancroft, who was his only analyst that I, that I know actually wrote me the response and said, um, I think he had said something like, why don't you try, you know, to go to the East coast or maybe this firm in Connecticut, or there was something, there was some response related to, uh, so I wrote a physical letter, and he wrote me a email back, and hmm. that's what it was. And he had suggested that I go somewhere else because, um, in a roundabout way, that I should look at this fund or, or think about um, this because there just there wasn't any opportunity in San Diego. So I ended up um, working for an entrepreneur because a friend, a, a friend in college, his father knew a guy that had sold his business to Honeywell. Um, had very recently sold his business to Honeywell, a very interesting entrepreneur, and uh, my my thinking was, well, this is a good opportunity to learn to learn business. Interviewed with him, and we really clicked. I wasn't a big fan of the industry; it was more uh, electrical engineering type of industry, manufacturing um, home home security products, um, and designing home security products that were sold into that kind of ADT ecosystem, um, that monitoring ecosystem. But it was a good chance to learn. And this guy really yeah. gave me a shot at business to, 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 uh, just to be a part of all the different parts of the business and, and see everything from engineering to sales to finance. Um, and so You it was a wrote great that letter
2: and you looked for that job right after, after college, you said?
1: Yeah, I was looking yeah. for an internship with Geico, of course, and I had heard that he was operating that Lou Simpson was was running this Geico and money you, in San Had Diego, you studied
2: finance in school?
1: Uh yeah, business, accounting. So uh, and what was it
2: about yeah. Lou Simpson or value investing that you wanted to go what be What involved makes in. sense to me was like what the drew idea.
1: you? So what, what made sense to me, and I, I had read the, the typical Warren Buffett books that I think a lot of value investors get started with making of American capitalists, for example. And I was fascinated with the idea of looking at a stock like you're buying a whole business. That was the most important thing. And Buffett kept saying over and over again, you know, that is the most important thing he learned from Ben Graham. And so he said the more business-like he is, the better investor he becomes. And it's this, this feedback loop. And that made so much sense to me. It was like finding a religion. Hmm. And, and that thought, was a very well,
2: early time. Very
1: early. That was the very first thing. I got from that. So I was originally interested in kind of his private equity portfolio. So I thought, well, I want to do that. You know, that way I don't have to deal with the volatility and literally buy a business. Yeah. uh, yeah, Like literally. So I started, I called business brokers. I probably called 25 business brokers, got on lists and just said, I'm interested in your list, different listings of companies with at least, you know, 500,000 revenue and, and above. And I basically looked at, looked at private companies for more than a year. Um, and just as an exercise, it's kind of, you know, I wasn't really going to buy anything. We didn't have any money, but I was just really interested to see what that would look like to buy a small business. Um, <laughs> and so cool. I read security analysis and all that too. And I thought, okay, I get it. Right. You, the idea is here. If you really want to get rich, you need to think about a stock, like you're buying the whole business. But obviously the kind of business you would buy today is very different than the ideal business you would buy tomorrow. And if you're buying a business. Hmm. For a twenty or thirty-year period, you need a business that is going to continue to do well for twenty or thirty years. So the businesses that Ben Graham was talking about at that time, um, most of them don't even exist. And I remember thinking, you know, looking for those. I don't know if you've read the book, but it goes through all these different examples of companies and showing how he looks at them and breaks it down from a cash flow perspective and a balance sheet perspective, and 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 thinks about them in terms of you know, financial matrix that made sense for those businesses at that time. But those businesses aren't publicly traded anymore. I think the only one that he ever mentioned in the book was GE and none of them are, maybe Dow Chemical, the rest of them are, are. Um, some, you know, they're a part of, you know, they've been sold or whatever. They're a part of other businesses, maybe Burlington Northern acquired all, all the railroads or something, but um so that's what attracted me to, to value investing. Well, to Buffett was this idea of thinking about a stock like you're buying the whole business, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything more than, you know, the whole business that I would buy may be different than the whole business you would buy, but the trick is we're both looking at it like we're buying a whole. So we're both buying a business, but um, they could be very different businesses.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I'm just so intrigued that you came to that just so naturally (laughs) because so many people end up going like full on Wall Street trading. Like they don't, they don't take to that idea um, from studying in school.
1: When we sold, so this group that I work for at Honeywell um, invited me, the founder of that business who had sold, um, invited me to um, go along with him to start a business, uh, after Honeywell. So, uh, he wanted to basically build a business to compete with the division that he had sold them. And it was for some reasons. They, they, uh, they had not, anyway, they, there were some really reason, some legitimate reasons for him wanting to leave and, and compete. They didn't fulfill their, their, uh, their promise and obligation on, on, um, the way we were compensated essentially, which is not uncommon so um at that fork in the road it was at that time in my life it was i had i really was itching to to get into investing i thought about going to columbia business school and and i spent um a few days um just as an observer of some of the classes thinking about applying and that was the time i was thinking about joining this guy or doing something entrepreneurial um and it just it just kept coming back i was just i realized I was a lot more entrepreneurial than the people that i had met um that had encountered at 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 Columbia business school in that few days. And it just dawned on me that this is just, I, I, I want to just go for it. I feel like I either want to, you know, go start a fund or I need to go work for this entrepreneur, but the, my path is kind of executing and and I just want to make something happen, even if I fail. So, um, I ended up working with this small group of guys who started this business and it was, it was an incredible experience. Um, I did it for a few years and and we sold it to um, a subsidiary of, of TH Lee, which is a Boston-based private equity fund, and um, gave me a little bit of capital of my own to get started, to, to feel like I had financial runway to go figure it out, to figure out a fund. And the initial version of JDP was actually looking for uh, distressed divestitures of public companies, because when the financial crisis had gotten started, the belief was that you could buy divisions of of companies that were in trouble financially with upside down balance sheets um, for, you know, for great value. Um, I wasn't as much interested in operating them as I just thought it was a a really good source of deal flow. So for the first, uh, for the first couple of years, a year and a half or so, that was the, that was the focus was building um, financial models to kind of try to weed out um, distressed public companies that um, may have a division or an asset that could we could potentially buy. Um, and I organized a little a little pool of committed capital and um, flew all over the place uh, trying to make deals with these public companies, uh, relatively big public companies who were, were selling divisions or would be selling divisions, mostly in the Rust Belt. And Um, what happened was there was just a flood of money into private equity because markets became the very last place people wanted to put their money. And Mm -hmm. so private equity just went through the roof and the valuations uh, that was that these even really distressed divisions, really low quality divisions, um, the valuations they were getting were sometimes two and three times higher than the public company stock <laughs> that was selling the business. that's crazy so a medium quality business was selling a really really low quality business it probably needed to be liquidated but it sold for multitudes higher because there was so much capital um committed to private equity at the hmm. time and so we kept losing out and losing out and losing out and, and um, when
2: was this right after the great recession right like the, 2011 2012
1: yeah, no no this was like 2009 2000 oh right
2: in there okay yeah, yeah
1: 2000, 2009 and 10 really Um, and there was just a, a point where I looked up and said, I, after looking at, you know, tons and tons and tons of businesses, I was really studying these publicly traded businesses all the time. And I thought, why don't we just, we're just better off from a pure valuation perspective. And you get to know them when you, when you kick the tires on a few of their, their divisions that are not necessarily part of, of their investor presentation."
0: (laughs) <laughs>
1: why, don't we just, why don't we just buy the stock, right? Like, I don't want to go in and operate them. So, we're probably better off putting five or 10 of these in a portfolio and just owning them because our ultimate goal is just to have an above average return. Um, and most of the investors said no. They said, no, that's too scary. We don't want to be involved in stocks. They said, well, what's hmm. the difference, right? It's whether we're buying a public company or a private company. I'm trying to show them this book making up an American capitalist. Look, Buffett did it. <laughs> Buffett started with equity private public and then went private. And then we, why can't we start with private equities and go to the public equities and it's all the same. And yeah, it's all the same. It's all the same. And, and you know, no, you know, these guys said, no, it's not. So, um, uh, one guy though, who, who was fortunate enough to, um, ultimately be my first investor, um, you know, liked the idea and had been a part of some value funds and, um, completely turned the business around. We got rid of this private equity, uh, closed, closed structure and, and converted it to a open-ended hedge fund structure partnership and, uh, launched. Um, wow. I believe he committed 250,000 and I put in 200 or 250,000 of my money. And that's how we, that's how, you know, I started working from my, I had a second bedroom, um, in an apartment in San Diego and I, Got up in the morning and, and used value line and really went through every company looking for high returns on capital and um, really mispriced situations and distressed companies and stuff like that and you know this was we actually launched and started trading in, in late uh, in o- October 2011.
2: I'm struck by the similarities to Buffett actually in how Buffett started out being really interested in stocks, being, you know, kind of a young phenom with buying stocks and selling stocks and then getting into private companies and thinking that he could uh, do something with them that he kind of couldn't and wasn't able to and turned Berkshire Hathaway eventually after the partnership into his own, uh, you know, public and private ownership vehicle. And in a way you've done kind of the Buffett... Uh <laughs> the methodology. Inverted,
1: maybe, maybe, yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, it just haven't haven't been as successful as him, I guess. But um well, that's yeah, a high but... <laughs> that's a high bar.
2: <laughs> so one thing that we talked about um talking about today was you and I were just texting about mistakes that we make when we're investing. And yeah, yeah. this is something that Our listeners know I am utterly fascinated by trying to be really ruthless in with myself in evaluating my mistakes and not avoiding them, which is very hard for me in, um, in not pretending like they didn't happen. And some of my biggest mistakes, and I've only been doing this for a few years, but I have a lot of mistakes. And the biggest ones are my mistakes of omission. I find that when I take action, it's been so picked over. I generally do okay with that. But, um, you know, other people have the opposite problem, which is they take too much action and need to dial it back. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your, what's your biggest mistake? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you don't mind sharing, the biggest mistake
1: was probably around two thousand and fifteen or sixteen realizing, well, maybe two thousand and fifteen, after being in business four years, realizing that that um I was underperforming my best ideas by a wide margin.
2: Oh, tell so me when, about that. When, You're when underperforming company, your well, best ideas. Yeah,
1: underperforming my best ideas, meaning I would buy something that I thought was attractive, that you know based on some financial matrix that I had sort of made up, I had this investment banker mindset. Um, and I would, you know, ultimately gravitate towards, so in the early days of, of right after the financial crisis for the first couple of years, you could pretty much buy anything and it would go up, but it, that, that settled down and, 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 um, businesses, you know, you sort of had to pay more or less what things were worth. And so I noticed that I was selling things that when they would hit some, I, I would, I would come up with a thesis that would find a great business. I would. Buy it. And then, but part of that thesis was having an exit. Part of that thesis was having a, 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 a price that I wanted to sell it for. And that became really my, my focus um, subconsciously was, you know, how close is this to an intrinsic value, which means I must sell it. And what I noticed as oh. time went on is that, you know, my lower quality things um, I would sell. And that was great because you have to sell the low quality stuff. It's more like a hot potato game.
2: But Let's the stop quality, there for a second. You yeah. decided to sell when you mentioned intrinsic well, value. I would
1: get it some kind of intrinsic value that I sort of made up in my head.
2: Okay, so uh, there was kind of a was, price that you were looking for, yeah. where you were thinking this is the ceiling of this. What I thought it
1: would sell for is a private business, which is we were, you know, like okay, if this thing, and I really stayed close to private equity and valuations and, and investment banks, and I you know, what is, what are things selling for? And I really thought it was also, that was kind of a marketing edge too, to say, Oh, look, you know, this is what XYZ type of distri- distribution company would sell for. This is what KKR just paid for this thing. So, you know, we can buy it for half of that. And that was a good way to communicate to investors, but it was a very poor way of actually investing and the returns <laughs> suffered enormously for it. So thinking like a business owner, would not be thinking in terms of flipping something. I mean, that's a different kind of a different kind of investor. But if you're mm-hmm. buying a business and you're gonna hold on to it, you're gonna buy a business that has the ability to compound and grow because that's how the most successful investors in the world operate. They're concentrated in companies that they know very well, but those businesses also have the ability, they're, they're not melting ice cube businesses, they're businesses that can grow <laughs> and compound for a very, very long period of time. And, Going back and looking at Buffett's greatest investments, they all had that characteristic. And looking at his portfolio today, he, the, the, nothing is being traded because it hits some kind of intrinsic value. Um, it, he's, he's in it for the long haul. And so I realized that my biggest mistakes were Uh, so many of them, I I would sell and watch them just continue to just go up and up and up and up. And I would follow them and I would, the press release be like, oh, they achieved this much more revenue or this much more EBITDA, this much more free cash flow, or they bought this great company or they, you know, they were just great businesses.
2: So it wasn't so much that the market was going crazy because that's the first thought thought everyone's going to have. Like, okay, you sold when it actually, the fundamentals told you to sell and then the market was just irrational. But you're saying actually these businesses had fundamentals that just kept getting better. They just
1: kept getting better and better, right? Because the value proposition that they were offering to their customers was improving every year by a lot, which contributed to their moat, which contributed ultimately to their earning power. Mm-hmm. And by looking at the business in the short term based on an arbitrary value at that moment told you nothing you know about the future of that business and mm. investing is really about the future it's not about the past and I realized the biggest mistakes I was making was extrapolating the past onto the future mm. and yeah. that the most successful investors um, are able to think in terms of the future not the past and um, as you know it's really hard to go back and buy something for 100% more than you sold it for it's very <laughs> hard to do and, and the gap would just get wider and wider and wider. And I also found myself in circles of, of people and around other people that, um, you know, cause when I got into the business, I, I didn't come from Wall Street. I didn't come from finance. So I mm-hmm. didn't have any friends or any acquaint, you know, any, any coworkers or whatever. I didn't have any, uh, colleagues, um, in finance to like share ideas with of which looking back was, it was a, was an advantage. And then I built this group of people that were giving me this positive feedback loop. Like, Oh yeah, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's being disciplined. And I'm like, wait, but, but the company <laughs> just grew oh, earnings see, by 30% were, and 40%. And then as, as time you went were on,
2: selling, they were telling you selling. Yeah, well, like, just
1: in that typical kind of, you know, price-oriented, rear-view-looking mm. value community that you know just started – it was this positive feed. Everybody's feeding off each other. but My investors were like, well, what? why would you sell that? You know, when they would, I'd write a letter about something uh, or mention a stock that I had, it had sold, and they'd be like, wait, why did you sell that? Like, like, <laughs> uh, well, because I have this great new group of friends that really encouraged me to, to do the right thing and sell at intrinsic value, oh, and that was a part of the safety, and I thought, oh, you know what? Um, and then as the years went on, I, I noticed that, um, that it really took, you know, in order to, in order to be a great investor, you really have to think independently. And these are, these are, tr- these are things that Buffett teaches us. Buffett doesn't teach us to, to lock arms with a group of, you know, 10,000 like-minded people, uh, all oddballs and all do exactly <laughs> the same thing and all not evolve unless one does. And then when, when one does, then you can evolve. I mean, that's not what Buffett teaches us. So um, he also doesn't teach us to buy low quality businesses. He teaches us to think about a stock like you're buying the whole business. And that's up to you to interpret what that is. But that when, if you were to buy a new bu- if you were to buy a business, um, you would, you would do a lot more. You, you wouldn't just, it wouldn't just only be based on price, right? You would, you would actually do research on the business and think about what are the future prospects of this business. And that would be the focus. And you wouldn't sell it unless there was a material reason to sell it, like a business reason to sell it. Um, yeah, somebody could offer you more than you paid, but, and maybe that's your goal. But if you were a long-term investor trying to compound money at a, kind of at a tax-free, tax-free rate because you're not paying taxes until you sell, which is an American fund, that's, that's our challenge. Um, then you would want to own companies that could just keep compounding. So um, that led to a, a decision to overhaul the whole way that I was thinking about businesses and um, um, wow, just just kind of not start over, but really analyze the mistakes that I made and the mistakes were mistakes, mistakes of a mission, but really big ones. I mean, I'm not talking about, Oh, we could have made another, another double or triple. I, you know, the, the mistakes were, were all more than 10 baggers. I mean, uh, some, one was actually a One was actually a hundred bagger. One, I mean, I'd Whoa. be managing over a, you know, I'd be managing some astronomical amount of money by now if I had just sort of bought and held the, some of the first businesses. And, um, they, what they all had in common was that they were, you know, they were run by, by, by normally founder led, CEOs, or uh, and and they were investing a hundred percent of their gross margin back into the business at incrementally higher rates of return, and um, they were making their business more compatible for tomorrow's economy than yesterday's economy. So mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily tech companies, but they were companies who were thinking about the future um, of their business, even if it was a basic metal stamping business. They they just you know they recognized that it was it was no longer 1946, and that they needed to move forward. And um, most businesses are not set up to do that. Most businesses are set up to just pay a dividend or just think about the the hit the past and just kind of maintain,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and not get up every day and fight um, and refight and start all over again and and and. Um, and, and earn it, and try to stay number one in their in their industry, and
2: innovate, change, and innovate and change, move with what's happening right, in our right. very fast changing world.
1: Absolutely. So I developed four principles. I looked at and Seth, and this my, is
2: you developed these principles to tonight. determine how to find companies that would yeah. be able to do better in the future.
1: Yeah, my business partner and started as my analyst. Um, Seth, we, we looked at, I don't want to need to go down to a tangent, but we looked at, um, we I basically, love, I we, love put tangents. A, we put a, Give we me put the a study together, we put a study together called peak to peak and we looked at companies, um, uh, over major cycles going back to the 1940s or fifties or so <laughs> and uh, the mid 1940s. Um, and we assume that you bought the, the most, the companies, um, we assume that you bought all companies at the peak. And then we wanted to see how all those companies did if you held till the next peak. So you had no advantage of of ever getting a deal, essentially. The peak being the
2: peak of the market? The peak of the market. The peak
1: of the market. So let's call it peak.com. Let's call it peak 2007 before the financial crisis. Let's Mm -hmm. call it peak
2: 1960s. How far back did you go?
1: We went back back to the kind of the mid 40s, which didn't produce a big peak. And a lot of those companies are not, Um, publicly traded or weren't, we couldn't find data for a lot of them that were, but in order to, in order to qualify, you had to be continuously publicly traded and you had to be over the equivalent of uh, 500 million in market cap at the beginning. So very investable companies. So we weren't looking at the micro caps or whatever. And we also excluded biotech because um, it just wasn't something I was, I just thought I want to sort of see the way the universe shakes out With Hmm. more traditional businesses, including tech, but just non biotech.
2: And did you say companies that were there in 1940-ish something and are no longer publicly traded now? They had to be not part of
1: it. They had to be part of. They had to be visible and publicly traded continuously through to the next major peak.
2: Ah, okay, got it.
1: So it was kind of I was going to say that's
2: not going to be very many companies. So
1: yeah, so we <laughs> wanted to see what the characteristics were of companies that you bought cuz everybody before this crisis, this covid crisis, everybody all people talked about was to you know it was this long this long you know market highs and and when is it going to end and it's going to come crashing down and it's at peak it's peak, peak peak every day was peak you know new valuations um, mm-hmm. longest run in the long run and And we wanted to kind of, and this has been going on for, obviously since 2007, it's been basically just going up. And a lot of it you could say is maybe it's, you know, macro, there's some, you know, interest rates and stuff at play, but going back further than that, we wanted to see like, look, if you paid, if you bought, if you bought everything at the peak and you held to the next peak, who outperformed the market, the widest and why, and who underperformed the market the most and why, and who never came back and who did. So it's fascinating what we found. The top 25%, at least. Going, let's take for example the financial crisis 2007, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head now. But the top 25%, you know, were double or triple the S&P 500 at the time. And we we did a 12-year peak to peak, and now it need, probably need to be updated again. Um, and so we ended it. The peak was I think October 7th, 2007, or October 10th, 2007, or something like that. And we did it through until. 2019, the, uh, October, 2019, but the companies that, you know, really did well, the companies that were, you know, five X or more than the market, um, weren't the companies you would think they were, they weren't just, it hmm. wasn't just, yeah, Netflix was the number one, but it wasn't like this list of tech companies below it. It was actually a list of, of companies that you would think of as relatively normal, like Domino's pizza, for example, was in there. That's a good. And one. these are companies that made, you know, 1300, 1500% returns, um, you know, multitudes better than the S and P if you bought them at the absolute peak of the market and held them. So if you had had any advantage of time, in addition to that, the returns would have just been unbelievable. Hmm. And so if you look at the, and you start digging down at the characteristics of these businesses, which seemingly have nothing in common, they actually do have a lot in common. And then if you dig down at the bottom of the barrel, the companies that, that, um, were, were, well, first of all, the companies at the top were never cheap and they continued to compound and they were just never cheap because they just continued to be to be amazing companies. But the companies at the bottom of that peak to peak time were interesting and enough very cheap then. And if you held them to the next peak, they were still cheap at the end of the next peak. And maybe they, there were periods when they went up and then maybe somebody sold them or whatever. But if you held them They didn't do any better over the long term. They actually did worse and continue to underperform. So the underperformers, the bad businesses are always bad. And the really good businesses are always really good. And what they have in common is, what great businesses have in common is, the longer you own them, the less relevant valuation and price becomes um and so if you're a a trader or you're going to own something in less than you know two or three years price is very important because it's it's sentiment driven and all these macro events but if you go out long enough um price is not price really just doesn't matter so not saying that and if you if you're
2: able to hold them long enough
1: well yeah you have to be able to hold them so it wasn't that i was trying to necessarily buy a company for 30 years and convince my investors that i had picked the one it wasn't that i was just trying to see that that you should be looking for characteristics other than just price.
2: So what kind of characteristics did you find besides price that
1: Well there were four
2: that, that you look for key, now.
1: There were four kind of key things that um, we call the, we call this sur- the survivor and driver company criteria. Mm, okay, give me the four. And so um, the first one is a business model that is adaptable and relevant in tomorrow's economy. The second one is a is durable pricing power that is protected by a growing competitive advantage. The third one is a, is capital allocation and balance sheet strategy that supports the company's moat, and the fourth the fourth one is alignment of interest between management and owners. So it okay. sounds simple,
2: uh, but that does not sound out simple. Out of in all any the way.
1: companies we looked at going back in time, the ones that outperformed the most kind of had had these characteristics.
2: I want to hear them again. So the business model. The business te- model
1: is adaptable and relevant. In adaptable
2: tomorrow's economy. and relevant. I'm going to say it in slowly because everybody's economy. writing it down while they listen. Yeah. Business model is adaptable and relevant to tomorrow's economy. In, in,
0: in, a,
1: in tomorrow's economy.
0: Okay.
1: And let me give you like a brief example. The example I've given when I've talked about this before is the one that is easiest for people to understand is Domino's Pizza. They were the first pizza company to put a website, to have a website where you could order a pizza. I'm talking about in the 90s. Yeah, I remember that. People were scared to death to put their credit card in. Mm -hmm. And they said, people are someday going to order pizza through a website. And all the restaurant analysts missed it. They missed all this money that was being put into the technology because they were thinking ahead. They were thinking that we want to be a part of the future, not the past. And so all the restaurant people missed it. They're still focused on the price of cheese and the consumption of pizza, and that's only growing at 3 or 4% a year, 5% a year, whatever. They have these macro numbers, and, and they're worried about what percentage people are eating out and the GDP numbers. But, in, but the tech guys were probably looking at it. I don't know this to be true, but the tech sell side was probably saying, well, it's just a pizza company. What do they know about technology? But the real, the real value in that company was they, you know, they, they saw the future. They also were the first major pizza chain to develop an app before smartphones were, were, were really the the standard. Hmm. Um, and then they did so many, so much innovation around just making the customer happy and making it a better experience to order your pizza. That of course, everybody's copied it since, and it's now the standard, but they were the biggest player and the first player and they've uh, continued to, to execute. And that stock is just I mean, it's performed like a tech stock for the last 30 years. It's, it's unbelievable. Nuts. Thousands of multi, 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 multi-bagger return. And it has yeah. nothing to do with pizza. <laughs> and so that's an example of a management team that was thinking about having a company that was relevant in tomorrow's economy. And, and the past is not the same as the future. So if you didn't grasp onto that, that one essential element it wasn't about debt levels. It wasn't about the multiple of the EBITDA. It wasn't about cash flow. It wasn't about anything. It wasn't about pizza trends. It was about this uh, business progress that the company was making, the strategic direction that they were headed down. And you had to be able to have the conviction and be close enough to the company to be able to, to, to own that stock, even when it looked expensive, because your bet was something different mm. than just a valuation, uh, a mean reversing valuation. Mm.
2: Okay. Tell me the other, what was the second one? I want to make sure we get these. The second one is a
1: durable, durable pricing power that is protected by a growing Mm. competitive advantage.
2: So pricing power protected by a moat. By a growing competitive advantage.
1: So the growing competitive advantage, um, allows you to hang on to your pricing power, whether it's your gross margins. And one, one thing we saw with the companies that have outperformed the longest, they've been able to sustain gross profit at a, at a specific level for a really long period of time. And that's, Hmm. that's an, that's, that's a reflection of, of, um, durability. I mean, yes, it's, it's a moat as well. And the third one is a little more moat oriented, but, um, they've got the ability to, they've got some durability to their pricing power. And a lot of times their pricing power just means maintaining like over a really, really long period of time. If you can maintain, I don't know, 50% gross margin or 30% gross margin, um, you're going to do better than most because most, most companies, you know, their, their pricing power is, is limited. Uh, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't last forever. So uh, the competition comes in and, and it's just sort of all about sort of trying to play defense.
2: And, and the third?
1: Themselves. The third one is a capital allocation and balance sheet strategy that supports the company's moat.
2: Capital so, allocation and balance sheet strategy, strategy that, that supports, supports the, the moat. company's moat.
1: Right. So for example, share buybacks in and of themselves, not good enough. Um, they they work, and there's obviously a lot of there's some couple of a couple of famous investors like John Malone that are famous for the leverage buyback model because they because of the underlying business could support it could support a lot of leverage because it was so predictable being cable. But generally speaking, um, you know buybacks and and a lot of the company we we want to see that the balance sheet whatever the balance sheet is I don't care if it's if it's a tech business and has no debt and it's just you know, all, um, you know, just, just goodwill it, whatever the, ca- whatever the balance sheet, strat- whatever the capital allocation strategy is and the balance sheet strategy, it needs to support the moat of the company. So when, the, when the, when the management team makes a decision about how to allocate capital, it needs to support the moat. As an example, A modern business, for example, may say, you know what, we have an opportunity, an endless runway to reinvest 100% of our gross profit back in the business for the next five years and incrementally higher rates of return. That is supporting our moat, which supports our competitive advantage because we're and allows us to be. Uh, to have a business model that, that is relevant in tomorrow's economy. They're mm-hmm. moving forward. You mm-hmm. have something better to do than just return the capital to shareholders.
2: Yes, because if they're allocating their capital to support their moat, that means that they are looking at a long-term yes. perspective. And
1: if they have nothing else to do than pay a dividend, and nothing else to do than buy the stock back, then... At least for a smaller fund, um, we're, we're not as interested in, in, in that, especially in a zero interest rate environment. We're just Understood. not interested in
2: that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What's the fourth there's, one? <laughs>
1: there's enough opportunity out there. Um, and the fourth <laughs> one is alignment of interest between management and, and owners. And that alignment of interest um, is everybody always talks about this, you know, but we've, we've, some of my biggest mistakes are where those top three, those first three that I just mentioned, all met the criteria, um, mm-hmm. but yet we got burned big time when there was not an alignment of interest between the controlling shareholder or the, between the controlling or the management team or the controlling shareholders and the minority investors. So oh. um, so what does that look like? What interest. does alignment well, look like? So a lot of it is qualitative where we found our best returns are from founder-led mm-hmm. uh, companies, companies mm-hmm. that are where you have a founder or a board, or sometimes it's a founder, a CEO that's been put in power by the by the founder. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily a function of how much money they have in the business, whatever. It's just that they're able to hold the line and, and, and make decisions that are, that are non-traditional. They, they're allowed like Jeff Bezos, they're allowed to make decisions that may not pay off for five or 10 years. And in a traditional board where everybody's just an employee and all went to Harvard business school together, and they're just kind of smoking cigars in the back room. And that's how you get promoted as a, you know, a white male in his late fifties. And that's how you get promoted because you've been in the company a long time. Mm -hmm. That is not an alignment of interest because people like that can't—they're not make—they're not able to make really long-term decisions that potentially tank the stock essentially in the short term. And that's, I think, what a lot of value investors missed about Amazon, as an example, Mm -hmm. um, which now has become very obvious that they missed. I think more people are aware of that. But you you need to have an alignment of interest. And my my interest—if my interest is is making a five or ten year bet. I want to make sure that there's a management team that's also thinking in terms of five and 10 year bets, um, and not just paying out a dividend. Like that's not a five year bet to me. That's a trade. Absolutely. So I want somebody, I need a management team that is in it for all of us to win together. And I don't care if they have a big bonus or they make a lot of money in stock options or they have RSUs or whatever. That's kind of secondary. Um, I think what's important is an alignment of interest. And again, where we've been burned, um, probably one of our our biggest mistakes of all time, like historic big mistakes, um, actually happened when the controlling shareholder completely took advantage of their position uh legally uh to just just burn, burn minority shareholders to the ground. Um and and you know that happens that happens quite a bit. I mean, there's other there's other managers that you and I both know. um, who were also victims of, of similar things. Um, maybe not necessarily bankruptcies, but, um, you know, if the, if the situation, you know, getting burned by a management team or by a controlling shareholder group, it can look a lot of different ways. And so you need to make sure, or I need to make sure that, that whatever we own, I really feel like they're, they're aligned with me for the, for the term, at least, <laughs> that I'm thinking about the company. So if I'm thinking about it for five years, I wanna know that Daniel Ek, for example, at Spotify is gonna be making decisions for the same, for the next five and 10 years, um, you know, that matches my duration.
2: Looking back at that situation where you made the mistake Can you see clearly that the interests were not aligned in in hindsight?
1: Absolutely. In hindsight. And it was completely our own mistake. Uh, Seth and I, you know, we were so, so involved in the business that we Hmm. just couldn't see the forest for the trees. Hmm. Um, We, the investigative journalism, I guess you could call it, or research (laughs) we were doing was really next level. And it turned out to be completely worthless. Hmm. We spent thousands of hours. It was a massive position. Um, and we got it right. We got the fundamentals right. Um, we got all three of those, those first three survivor and thriver characteristics correct. But we just blew it on the fourth one because we just couldn't see how, and we were actually being asked by other shareholders, are you sure that, um, are you sure this management team isn't out to screw everybody? Because it does something here isn't adding up. Like I get it that all these things are right that you're saying, but why is management doing this? and not that. And you're like, you know, that's a good question, but they wouldn't burn anybody. They wouldn't, they have this great, you know, seem, I don't know if they have a great reputation. I don't know, but I, we thought that they had this, at least were aligned somehow to make a decision that benefited uh, the the minority shareholders, but they took advantage of um, a situation, a legal situation and and, uh, it wasn't a bankruptcy or anything. It wasn't that, but they took advantage of uh, the domicile of the company. Um, to buy out the company for pennies on the dollar. We sued them and we actually got, we recovered some of the money and the litigation is ongoing, but um, we decided that never again, you know, we realized that that was the, 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 the mistake and never again will we will be, be involved in something no matter how cheap it is or no matter how much upside there is. If there's not a clear alignment of interest between management and owners and minority owners.
2: Uh, I mean, to be fair to you, I know the company you're talking about and I agree that they had what I thought was a very good reputation as well. So yeah. it's a, it's a tough one but I, that's why I asked you about hindsight. Cause on hindsight, you can see it, but how do you take that and twist it around so that you can use it for your foresight? So Have you changed group, yeah, your process? His,
1: yeah. Well, these, the difference was in that case, they were financial buyers. So they mm. were just finance guys uh, that could care less. They were looking to make an IRR. It was part of a publicly traded private equity fund. And um, they're, you know, just a bunch of finance guys. This wasn't their business, wasn't their baby. It wasn't their life's work. So we've had the best returns are from companies where it's the founder's life work. life's work. Totally. They don't need to sell the totally. Business. It's yeah. like Warren Buffett. They don't. He doesn't need to sell Berkshire Hathaway. And when companies we own, like Spotify, for example, when Daniel Ek, Or Roku with Andy Wood. Mm -hmm. They both have what they both have in common from the alignment of interest perspective is they both, uh, this is not their first rodeo. It's not their first show. They started those businesses already rich and they said, we don't ever want to sell them. And Daniel Eck said, we we wanted to start a business that we would never have to sell. Mm -hmm. And there could be speculation about this or that, but this is, I guess they could change their mind, but. you know, when, when you start out publicly and you say that as part of your, you know, your core principles, um, Andy Wood, for example, at Roku says, you know, he was this was his sixth business. Roku means six in, in Japanese. It was a sixth business. He was already worth hundreds of millions when he started it. And so he said, we don't need to sell it.
0: We're just They're doing
1: it because to inv- they love innovate. it. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need it. And so whether the stock is at 100 or whether it's at one, it just doesn't matter because that's not their motivation. Like Jeff Bezos. We don't have to sell why, why, we don't have to. He, he's not in the business to sell it. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between that and like a more distressed situation where you have a financial sponsor or you have another hedge fund or something that controls it, or it's an activist campaign or something like that, which is very short-term in nature. And those people have shareholders, and there's always a blame of like, well, we had to do it, we had to do it was in the best interest of our LPs, and you are like, well, wait. <laughs> What about, what about, you know, aren't we all in the same basket together? And the answer yeah. is no, we're not in the same basket. Uh, because if they can buy you out at pennies on the dollar because of a very obscure uh, legal situation um, loophole in the domicile of the business, then uh, without a vote, without a shareholder vote, for example, then um, that's in the best interest of their shareholders to take advantage of you. So um I don't want to be in that situation again. So it doesn't no. mean you always get it right, but this was an example of looking back. Um yeah.
2: Incredible. I, I've been taking notes this whole time. I've got them all written down. I am so on board with these principles. And uh, I I could not agree more about having somebody leading the business who loves it, who it's their baby. They want to see it change the world and do good things. That's what, that's what we want to own.
1: That's right. Yeah. So it's, it makes investing a lot more fun and it also allows you to get your arms around the business and it allows you to be a champion of that business. And um, Rob Vernal, who's an investor I really admire, um, and I've met him briefly a couple of times—once at his shareholder meeting and another time at Guy Spears' annual meeting—and he he said something in one of his letters, um, something like, you know, you I, to the I'm butchering it, but something along the lines of, you know, you know we most we, we want to fall in love with our companies. Yes, we do. And and, and I love that people are out there saying love, that. It's like have the have the cojones to say it because mm-hmm. how are you going to think like a long term owner when the sentiment goes against you? When everybody says, "Oh, that company's overvalued," or "That company will no longer be able to compete with X Y Z company," or 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 oh, the market's going to crash, or oh, what about this? What about inflation? What about interest rates? What about what about what about? you know, you're up falling off the face of the earth, which was the fear a few years ago, whatever. Um, if you're not in love with the business, you can't do, you can't do business specific research and it can't be a passion, um, to, in order for you to have the conviction to continue to hold that business regardless of what even your friends in, in the industry might be saying. So, um, Yeah. And falling in love with your businesses doesn't mean you never sell either. It just means that you need to have a framework to continue to own them and reassess them even on a daily basis through Mm -hmm. listening to, you know, to doing just enormous amounts of ground level research around the, the, you know, how do the customers think about the business, what's going on in the industry. Um, There's so many tools today to get really close to a public company without ever having to leave your house. Um, so many services you can pay, so many people you can interview outside of the C-suite, you know, people that actually matter. Um, you can conduct surveys, you can pay for, for professional um, interviews with, you know, different people. I mean, it's it's unbelievable what what um, what people have at, what investors actually, what full-time investors have access to if they really want to, and you have to choose your battles. So if that becomes, you know, and, and in my case, that's my daily routine. And that's how our investment process is set up is to is to just keep dragging those companies through those four criteria on a daily basis and asking ourselves, regardless of, the, regardless of price, do these companies still meet our survivor and thriver characteristics? Because if they do, um, then we want to continue owning them, regardless if we're at a peak market or the bottom of the market or whatever, we're not going to sell them to go bottom fish for some low-quality business that's gone down more like in March or something like that.
2: Um, I love so, it. I love it. Jeremy Deal, thank you so much for coming on and yeah, sharing these ideas and your background. I've just uh, enjoyed every second of it. Where yeah. can people find you if they want to follow what you're doing?
1: Um, the website is jdpcap.com. And uh, qualified, if you're a qualified investor, you can sign up to receive our, our uh, quarterly um, updates.
0: Okay, so sounds we a, good. We do
1: a monthly, or a quarterly Q&A. Uh, Seth and I do a quarterly Q&A with investors and we make a video of it. And, and a lot of that's on our YouTube channel, JDP oh. Capital uh, YouTube channel. So um, yeah. Go those, check the, out the JDP
2: thing. Capital YouTube channel. All right. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Really appreciate okay. it. And thanks everybody. Thank you.
1: Bye. Bye.